Greetings, guys, and welcome to our series, uh, Refuge and Repentance. This is actually uh, week five of our series, and this week we're focusing on uh, the product of repentance, or in other words, what does repentance uh, produce, and, and who, in a sense, produces it. And today, uh, in this episode, I really want to, uh, in many ways, present to us um, the dazzling splendor, the, the brightness of Christ uh, in his riches and all of his goodness as kind of like this, this blazing diamond that is posited on, on this black backdrop that, that as, we, as we go through this, um, as, as we go through this episode, as we go through this teaching on repentance, that we would consider Christ to be uh, the all-sufficient a wellspring for our every need, that we would consider Christ to be the holy, enjoyable fountainhead of our life, that we would find in many ways all of our needs satisfied in him, and that he would be the, 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 the treasure of greatest value that we would possess in our lives, that he would be the all-fulfilling source for every longing. And, and I feel as though as we've gone through this, this, uh, this teaching, this, uh, this episode and this, this series in, in repentance, that in, uh, my hope is, is that, that as we go through this and as we really apprehend the beauty of repentance, that it would, it would cause us to focus our gaze and our attention on the grandness and the supremacy of Christ and who he is and what he's done for us. And not only that, that it would direct our affections onto him. That there would be nothing in our lives that we would desire to give more affection to than to behold the treasure that is him, the, the goodness that is him, the sufficiency that is in him for every longing of our hearts spiritually. And so, with that being said, I just want to, I just want to dive in today and talk about this idea of repentance. As you guys know, we have been uh, at the beginning of, of the year. Uh, the Lord sort of brought me to this text uh, in His Word um, in in Second Peter chapter three, verses seventeen and eighteen. And I feel as though this is sort of an anthem, sort of some guideposts, some 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 guidance direction as to where it is that God is leading us uh, into this year. And I, I think this is not just for a season or for a year, but it is it is ultimately really for a lifetime. God says this in, in um, through the Apostle Peter in, in 2 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care, <coughs> guard, protect, observe, that you are not carried away. That we are to guard and protect and observe our faith. Observe what we're believing. Guard what we believe. Protect the very essence of Christ and his teaching and the reality of who he is. And that we would, in every way we would observe and be aware of what it is that we're bringing in. Of what it is we're teaching of what what kind of teaching that we're listening to what kind of people are we listening to 
Uh, what kind of supposed truth are we listening to? Is it centered and rooted in the apostles' teaching and in their words and in their letters? Or is it centered in something else? Is it, has it gone beyond uh, what it is that the apostles have brought us to know and to understand and to, and to realize about Christ? Peter's getting to this point. He says, take care, protect, guard what you have. Guard what you've been given, the truth, that you are not carried away, that you are not carried away, or that you do not associate or accommodate with teachings and, and, and teachers that are carrying you away from the truth, and that you are not carried away, you do not associate, or you do not accommodate your faith and your beliefs with these other teachings that are not from the apostles, that are not from Christ, that are not rooted in the truth of the word of God. And he goes on to say, with the error of lawless people. In other words, do not be carried away with the error of lawless people. Do not pay attention to those who ignore divine truth, but present it as their own truth. It is lawless people that are going to carry the church away and deceive the church because they do not remain in the truth, but they add to the truth by their own divine revelation that they claim to have. And so Peter is warning us, warning the church to stay within the bounds of the scriptures. Stay restrained by the word of God and the truth so that you would not lose your own stability, so that you would not lose your support, your safe position, your firm standing in the truth. If you are carried away with the lawlessness of people who do, do not remain in the truth, you will lose your firm standing. You will lose your support. You will lose your safe position. You will be tossed to and fro. And then he says, but go on and grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That this knowledge that Peter is talking about, it's a Greek word called gnosis, and it refers to learning. It refers to perceiving that leads to deep understanding. And that is what he is exhorting us as the church to endeavor to understand about Christ, to, to go beyond superficiality, to go beyond just elemental teaching, and concepts, but to go deep into the things of Christ, to perceive and to learn so as to know deeply who he is. Knowledge uh, is a defining feature of a life moving forward in Christ, is a defining feature, defining feature of a life moving forward beyond superficial and elementary concepts. It is coming off of the milk and eating solid food. It is a life who has an intensifying regard for the moral wisdom of God. It is a life that desires right and virtuous living so that we behold all of God's glory and Christ becomes the source of the all-satisfying insufficiency of life. And so that is what we endeavor to do as we work through our series on repentance. It is this idea that we are growing in the knowledge and the grace of Christ by, by diving deep into the things that are not necessarily talked about, explained, studied, 
that we would enter into a, a deeper understanding of knowing him through his word, by his truth, but being constrained by the teachings of the apostles through the word of God. In, in Philippians 3, chapter 8, Paul kind of considers this uh, in his letter. He says to the Philippians that he considers the knowing of Christ to be of surpassing worth. And that he regards the knowledge of Christ to be of inestimable value. That you can't put a price on it. You can't estimate it. It is beyond the value in which you could ascribe anything to that you see. The worth of all precious stones and earthly riches cannot be compared to the value of the knowledge of Christ. There is no amount of money in your account that equates to the worth of knowing Christ. There is no amount of land you can acquire whose cost resembles the infinite knowledge and significance of knowing Christ. The, the world doesn't hold enough property that you could gain which approaches the excellence of knowing Christ. Humanity and all its earthly wealth is unable to purchase even the tiniest particle or speck or fragment or trace of wisdom found in the knowledge of Christ. So as the church, let us prioritize a radical obedience to pursuing the knowledge of Christ. Not a pursuit anchored simply in fleeting feelings or temporary experiences. We have enough of those in life. But, but a pursuit built upon immovable trust, a pursuit built upon lasting confidence, a pursuit built upon a grace-saturated assurance of who he is, what he has done for us, and the life he has called us into. This pursuit is built not upon our own effort, but in the unswerving, unwavering reality of the gospel as our faith grows in Christ and our affections grow for his truth found in his word. And so with that being said, we launch in desiring truth, desiring knowing, desiring a, a deep understanding of Christ, that we're not just fact-finding, that we're not just intellectually uh, having it. We are not participating in a simple intellectual exercise, and not just acquiring information, but we are digging deep into the truth of Christ to know him so that what we read and what we know about him that he has shown us to be in his word would bear witness in our lives in the reality of the day-to-day. And so repentance is part of that, that there are many times, many moments in each person's day where repentance is required and is desired. Repentance and turning and correction and rebuke through the Lord is an ongoing process. It will continue until we are with him face to face as our process of sanctification and becoming made in his image and conforming to his character is, is lived out and is, the witness of that is borne out in our day-to-day -day lives. It is crucial. 
Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says that, that God grants repentance. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Who is it that initiates repentance? It is God that initiates repentance. It is not us. We have no ability in and of ourselves to initiate our own Christ-centered repentance, but it is through the conviction of the Holy Spirit that that happens. And God grants repentance, Paul says, in 2, Corinthians, or 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 25. He does this in order to lead us into the all the knowledge of the truth. It is true for the one who puts their faith in Christ for the first time through repentance, but it is also true for the Christian who makes repentance a practice of their life. That as we repent and turn from our sin, as we come to Christ, and as the character of Christ is being formed in us, we are led into all the knowledge of Christ, which causes him to be formed in us. And so with that in mind, we know that the scriptures affirm that repentance is firmly planted deep within the soil of Christ's ministry. And it is a vital nutrient. It is a vital nutrient rendering repentance an essential quality for life and godliness in Christ. Repentance is a nutrient that, gets, that burrows down deep into the soul of a person and it is at the very essence of Christ's ministry it is it is implanted deep into the soil of his ministry look at what the scriptures say about the uh, the necessity for repentance in the ministry of Christ right here in Mark chapter 1 verse 15 says that the time has come this is Jesus speaking the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe in the gospel and that is a repentance that continues that as we continue to believe in the gospel, we continue to apprehend the truth that we would continually repent of those things in our lives, the sin that plagues us, the sin that no longer controls us but is still a reality for us, that it would in every way cause us to look upon and fall at the knee, at the, at the foot of the cross and bask in the grace and the mercy of Christ who has come and has forgiven us of all of our sins. Listen to this in Luke chapter 5, 32. He says, I have not come to call a righteous, but sinners. I have not come for the for, for those who think they are well, but I've come for the sick. I've come for those who recognize their need and their total dependence on me. I recognize I come for those who desire transformation. I come for those who are ripe. I come for those who understand their need for me. And then Revelation 3.19 says this, says, those whom I love, I reprove. Those whom I, whom I love, I reprove, which means I, I convict, I refute, I, I kind of, I expose those whom I love. I expose the wickedness of their ways, the darkness of their soul, so that my light can shine through them, so that they can turn and come back to me so that they can live a life of godliness, a life filled with peace, of joy overflowing and rejoicing. It is only through this practice that we see these things come to fruition. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Be zealous, be enthusiastic, be eager to do this. Don't resist this work. Don't bury it, but be enthusiastic 
Although it may be difficult, it may be trying, it may be hard, enthusiastically desire repentance. Be zealous about it. Let it be uh, the thing that marks your life. So throughout the series, we've asked some questions. The first one was this, what is repentance? And we talked about what repentance was and what it wasn't. And we, we said that it was basically a sincere grief and remorse and sorrow over the sin that separates us from God, that causes a chasm between us and God that is only bridged by Christ and by our faith in Christ. And then we, we talked about the cause of repentance and we talked about how it is that it is that God that initiates repentance in the heart of every believer, that in and of ourselves we have no desire to repent that makes Christ the focus. But sometimes we desire to repent and to apologize in order to reconcile with each other, in order to right wrongs, in order to you know make ourselves feel better about our own failings. But ultimately what causes repentance is Christ and the conviction of the Spirit, and it is Christ's light shining in us to expose our sin so that we can turn, and it is the, the grief that God gives us over sin, because as we are regenerated in our heart and renewed in our mind, we begin to love the things that God loves, we begin to hate the sin that God must turn away from, and they cannot, uh, he cannot um, behold, uh, he cannot in any way entertain, and it is, if we want closeness with God, then we must recognize our sin and turn from it. And it is Christ who does this through the work of the Spirit. And then finally, we look at what is the purpose of repentance. And we looked at the purpose of repentance was, was, was that it was the authority of Christ, the Lordship of Christ, that is the aim and the goal. That was the reason why. It's not simply just to rectify wrongs and reestablish relationships, those are all good. But ultimately, our repentance is rooted in the lordship and authority of Christ. It is he, him who we desire to please above everything else. It is not for the acceptance and the attention of men, but for the adoration of Christ. And so today we look at the product. What is the product of repentance? In other words, what does repentance produce? What does a turning to Christ fashion in the life of a believer? What does sincere remorse and contrition over sin precipitate in the heart? While there are many marvelous virtues that we can look to um, that are products of repentance, I'm going to choose to focus on one this morning, and that one is simply this, that repentance produces a clean heart. In other words, purity is the product of repentance. Turn with me to Psalm 51, if you can, verses 9 to 12. We're going to read this in a moment, and I want to just share for a moment with you uh, the context of this passage. Uh, Psalm 51, uh, verse 9 and 10. By way of, of context, um, I want to note that uh, this psalm was written by David, and it is essentially a song of repentance. It is a song that David had penned uh, after he was confronted by Nathan the prophet over his sin, over his sin with Bathsheba as he committed adultery with her, and over his sin to conspire uh, to murder her husband in, the, in battle. And Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 12 confronts David 
about his sin, and, and he confronts him uh, pretty directly. And we see David's reaction both in 2 Samuel, but we get a, a greater understanding and a greater light being shined uh, into this reality that, of what David's response was to this sin that was uh, pointed out by by Nathan, but I want to direct your attention first to 2 Samuel chapter 12. You don't have to turn there, but, but Nathan confronts David regarding his relationship with Bathsheba and regarding his conspiracy to kill her husband. And upon being confronted by Nathan, David uh, has this response. I want, you to, I want you to pay close attention to the response that David gives to Nathan. David simply says this in response, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. I want you to notice something for all of us. What is our response when we are confronted with our sin? What is our response? Notice David's response. David's response was, was there was no equivocation in his response. His repentance was not marked by qualifications or hesitations or limitations. There was no effort to, to dodge the issue. There was no minimizing the rebuke or to beat around the bush about what was at stake. He was not out to save face with God. True Christ-centered repentance produces a sincere response. A full-throated answer that recognizes the severity of our sin against the Lord. David did not present himself as the victim of his own circumstances. He did not present himself of a, of a, as a victim of the, of the enemy's schemes against him. He did not equivocate on whose fault it was. He took full responsibility over his sin. He was completely resolute in his admission. Uh, oftentimes what we like to do is we like to make excuses for why we do what we do. And we try to pass off and to qualify our behavior based on some outside source. We fail to look within ourselves and to examine our own hearts oftentimes when we're confronted with our sin. It happens all the time. You see it even uh, in the culture. People that are clearly, clearly caught in a situation where true, sincere, remorseful repentance is the only thing that is required and commanded, and yet they find a way to blame someone or something else for their bad behavior. But David does not do this. And in Psalm 51, we see that he provides a much greater insight to his own heart and mind as the reality of his sin was brought to bear by Nathan. One of David's requests in his psalm here of repentance was to create in him a clean heart. And so we're going to read that. Essentially what David was asking and desiring was that his repentance would lead to a purified heart and mind and that the Lord would clean off and wash away the residue of his sin that was left behind. So I'm going to read from verse 9 to 12 just to give us some context, but we're really going to focus uh, on verse 10 and really specifically the first part of verse 10. But I'll start from 9 and, and read to 12. It says, Hide your face 
from my sins and, and blot me all, out all my iniquities. In other words, Lord, show your holiness by turning away from my sin because you cannot entertain my sin because of your holiness, because of your pureness, because of your moral impeccability. It is God that must turn away from our sin. He says, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Create in me a clean heart from the very inward part and renew a right spirit. Renew my motivation. Renew my thoughts. Renew my actions. Renew my behaviors. Renew my desires. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Restore to me the joy that I once felt in knowing that you have saved my soul. Restore to me that because I don't feel like that now, Lord. I, I don't feel in any way deserving of what you have to offer. There is no joy found in this heart because I am grieved over how I have offended your holiness. I want to first start here uh, in verse 10 in the first part. Uh, David says this. He starts off that verse and says, Create in me. And there's so much to be taken out of that simple statement. Create in me. There's, David is saying so much about God. And we, we understand so much about the Lord just in those few words. Because what happens is, is this text really draws our attention to David's singular reliance on God to perform this transformation. In other words, David is not looking within himself for the change that needs to be done. This Hebrew word speaks of the idea to shape or to form or to fashion, and particularly this idea of shaping and forming and fashioning by a divine activity. This is not sourced in human effort. He says, create in me, Lord. And he is admitting, David, that in order to be formed, what he desires in the inward places of his heart would not come from him. This transformative work cannot come from any human effort. That's what we see at the very beginning of this text. It will not be produced by any internal ability of our own. It cannot be manufactured from in one's self. John 1.3 says this, that uh, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That all things come through Christ. All things were made through him, by his word, by his power. And without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, there was nothing that you see in the visible world, in the spirit realm that was not made by God. That he is, he is um, solely you know, responsible for all things. And so it will be with David's own heart that he wants transformed. Who else can create a heart like this? Who else can be responsible for this remarkable work? This extends far beyond human hands, human ability. All this comes from God. 
The clean heart will come from Christ and will be for the glory of Christ because the affections of the clean heart are all unto Christ. Everything comes from him and through him and for him. Proverbs 28, 20 verses 8 to 10. We read this uh, about uh, God's view of, of who creates all things and who deals with all things in the heart. A king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his eyes. A king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his eyes. In other words, the king who sits on the throne of judgment, the one who has all authority, is the one who winnows or scatters and disperses evil. He is the one that rightly judges perfectly good from evil. And he does it with his eyes. He does it simply by gazing. It is, it is the effect of the judicial or the, um, the jurisdiction. Uh, within that jurisdiction, the king uh, is overseeing. He is responsible for judging all evil and all good in accord with his standard. And this obviously is pointing to Christ. Goes on to say, who can, I, who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. In other words, who can boast of something that only God can do? This will drive us to the cross every time. Who can boast or who can say, I have made my own heart pure? Who can say, I have cleansed myself from my sin? Why? Because we do not, we do not possess the standard for goodness and righteousness and holiness, but only God. We can never fully, accurately evaluate ourselves perfectly. But only God can judge the heart and the mind of every man and every woman perfectly. And then he goes on to say, unequal weights and measures are both like an abomination to the Lord. And it's this idea in the marketplace uh, where they used to use weights and measures to accurately uh, tell the customer whether or not whatever they were buying for grain or for resource was the weight of that was, was accurate and they were actually paying for what they were receiving. And so uh, sometimes people in the marketplace, vendors, they would use unequal weights and measures in order, uh, in other words, they would use a measure that was not of equal weight as what it said so that they would deprive the customer of what they were, they were buying. In other words, they were buying less than what they thought they were getting with the same amount of money. And the Lord said that he despises, it is an abomination, it is an attack on his justice, the, the idea of unequal weights and measures. And so it, tr it is true with us that it is not our right to determine and to discern our own moral capability or our own uh, moral uh, situation, that we cannot judge our own heart accurately, but it is only God who is the judge. He is the perfect weight and measure that measures everything perfectly to his standard. By boasting in our own ability, we cheat God of his exclusive ability and right to judge our hearts. David is not forging a partnership with God here. Create in me 
does not signal a partnership. God, David is not looking to God to partner with him for this to be accomplished. This is, this is not a collaboration uh, with God. God is not requesting an association or an alliance with David. What God requires of David and us is a resolute allegiance, not an association, not a partnership, not an alliance, but an allegiance to him, an allegiance to Christ fashioned by repentance. This will produce a clean heart. This is, the, this is all that is necessary for God to produce a clean heart. It is simple allegiance through repentance from us. So what is this clean heart? David said, create in me, and we understand what that means, but he says, create in me a clean heart. Well, what does that mean? What is in view here when we think of the idea of a clean heart? Well, this word in the Greek communicates this idea of pureness or a condition that lacks or is marked by an absence of evil, marked by an absence of corruption, marked by an absence of contamination. This, this idea of a pure heart, it really promotes the state of, of cleanliness in the very innermost parts of a person. Where once there was this residue of, of sin that lived in, in the person's heart, this has all been washed away, been made clean. This was David's desire that God would, would wash away and would cleanse the totally, the complete residue, all of the stain, all of the residue of sin, that it would be completely washed away from his heart. It was in every way a desire for God to possess, or for, for David to possess a heart of sincerity, a heart of righteousness, a heart free from the corrupting effects of sin, a heart that desires to live in obedience to the word of God. It was David's desire that this would be formed in him and that it would cause in him a renewed heart. In Psalm 51, verse 2, a little earlier in this psalm, we see a part of this coming out in, in, in David's writing. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And, and, and we have to understand here that David was not inquiring about some, you know, cleansing ritual, some physical ritual or, or ceremony that he was supposed to perform as an act of obedience. David was not taking matters into his own hands. He was not requesting a spiritual cleansing uh, in any way to accomplish what only the, the pure washing of pure water performed by God alone could accomplish in his heart. David understood that there was nothing he could do. There was no work to be performed. David understood that he had no authority to acquit himself of his guilt, that he was, uh, he, there was no sacrifice that he could offer to change his own heart. There was no ceremonial cleaning that he could perform to affect the change that he desired. There was no righteous deed he could, he could dispatch to please God, that it was nothing of his own doing, but it was God and God alone that would make this possible through faith. By faith in God, 
David trusted that God could create in him a pure heart, a perfect heart, a clean heart whose wellspring of righteousness is found in Christ. There was nothing David could do. No act of obedience, no ritual ceremony, no sacrifice that could have been offered up to God. He understood that it was by faith alone that his heart would be made pure and clean. And it is here that we behold the dazzling brightness and stunning display of the sufficiency of the gospel. It is, it is Christ through David that has provided, it will be, become the greatest gift. It is Christ and the gospel that is displayed. We get like a sneak peek of the coming gospel through the life of David and through his psalm here that he pens to God, requesting and desiring a clean heart by faith alone. It is a heralding, a foreshadowing of the gospel that is coming in Christ. And if you can see it and you can hear it, it will become the greatest gift of delight to you and your family. If you can see it and hear it, it will become the all-satisfying, most precious offering you can receive. If you can see it and hear it, it will be the all-fulfilling, supreme reality of the gospel that is foreshadowed here in Psalm 51. This is what we behold in Psalm 51, the sufficiency of Christ in cleansing not only David, but us through repentance. John 13, six through eight, says this, let me, let me read it here. John 13, 6 through 8 says this. This is when Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. This is what he says. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what, am I, what, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward, afterward, you will understand. And the idea here is, is that, that J Peter was not, did not understand because uh, the Spirit had not led him into that truth yet. That it was only by the Spirit of God that, that Peter's mind would be opened to understand what it is that Christ was doing in the moment. And, and, and ultimately, it is uh, Christ going to the cross that would show Peter the reality of what he's doing here. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your feet, listen to this, you have no share with me. You have no share with me. You have no part of me. You have no part of Christ if you do not allow him to wash you clean. And the only way he washes you clean is through the blood that is spilled on your behalf as a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice for your and my sin. And it is through the blood of Christ that we are washed. And Christ said, if you do not allow me to wash you, 
You can have no part of me. In other words, you deny me if you don't allow me to wash you through the cleansing of my blood spilled for you as I die for you. We have no share in Christ. We have no share in his accomplishment. We have no share in his inheritance. We have no share in the spiritual riches that have been afforded to us through his death and by our faith in him. We have no share in any of it unless we allow him to wash our hearts as he washed the feet of his disciples. See, what Jesus did was far beyond a physical washing of feet. It was something much greater, something much grander. It was a foreshadowing, it was a precursor to what he was going to do through his death. And that was to wash the heart of everyone who comes to him by faith, to wash and regenerate his heart so that by their repentance and their faith in him, they would be released, they would be delivered from the residue and the effect of sin in their life to God and to the holiness of Christ. And so we see that in Jesus' washing of their feet. In 1 John uh, 1, 9, it says this, that if we confess, or in other words, repent of our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sin, does that mean that our forgiveness is reliant on our confession? Does that mean that our forget or our cleansing is reliant on our confession? Yes and no. That Christ has in his death accomplished the washing of everyone's heart who will come to him. But yet that washing, that cleansing. Is applied to the heart of every believer by faith. But it is Christ who makes it possible. It is Christ who accomplishes it. And that by faith in him, as we trust in Christ, that washing, that cleansing of the heart is applied to the life of the believer. And that believer can walk in a purity of heart before God. And a heart that, require, that desires and that longs for righteousness and holiness. A, a, a heart that longs to please God and not themselves anymore. A, a heart that longs to please the will of God and to do the will of God. And not to, to, to live in their own will. To not be a slave to their own flesh and their own sin. But to God. And Christ lavishes on us this forgiveness and a cleansing of our heart on the grounds of his just character. He has promised to his followers the cleansing of our heart by faith. And so he can never nullify his promises. Every promise we read in scripture finds their yes, their fulfillment in Christ. Not every dream, every desire you have but every promise that Christ has given us, the promise of salvation, the promise of redemption, the promise of forgiveness, the promise of cleansing, the promise of sanctification, the promise of being glorified, being raised to new life with him, all of it is promised 
in Christ, and it is applied to us by faith so that we can boldly proclaim that every promise finds its yes in Christ. Listen to what uh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, 26. He says this, that he, Jesus, might sanctify her, the church, having what? Cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. How is it that Jesus washes us? How is it that the washing and the cleansing of our hearts is applied to us? It is through our obedience to know God's word, to love the truth of God, to stand firm in all of his instructions, to stand firm in all of his teachings, to love them and to desire them so that we can be skilled in every manner of life so that we can bring honor and glory to God in all we do. The word is the most effective disinfectant for the heart that is riddled with sin. It is pure and clean, Psalm 19 says. Why is this? Because it is where we notice and understand and, and, and behold God's holiness, God's purity, and God's impeccable character. It is in God's word. It is the self-revelation of who God is through his word that we know and understand and behold this beautiful reality of the God that we serve. And so our proper response to this God who has done all of this for us is what? A heart of repentance and a desire for a clean heart. In the end, the gospel of Christ declares this, that we cannot get to Christ through good works, that we cannot be cleansed by Christ through performance, that we cannot be washed in Christ through experiences or hypercharged emotions, but we are regenerated and sanctified in Christ by faith as the all-satisfying love of Christ causes us to see and to savor and to exult with inexpressible joy the beauty of Christ. It is the splendor of Christ that causes a reliance on Christ, which produces an allegiance to Christ, expressed in our repentance before Christ as we are washed in the word of Christ. And that is what our repentance produces it produces a clean heart because it shows and demonstrates our allegiance to Christ in Christ who cannot go back on his promises in Christ we find every promise to be yes so it is by the just mercy and goodness of Christ that through a repentant heart that demonstrates allegiance to him he washes the heart clean he cleanses the heart of the residue of sin, and he causes the affections and the desires of every man and woman to be attentive to his will and to his leading and to his direction. And that is the promise we have in Christ. That is what we have in repentance. That is why this teaching, this practice is so vital for a life lived in godliness for the glory of God. So that's what we have. So I want to thank you for joining us.
for this episode um, in Refuge, in our episode, in our series Refuge and Repentance. Um, we got one more week. Next week we'll be talking again about the product of repentance. What does repentance produce? And we're going to talk about how forgiveness and salvation have their relationship uh, with the idea and the practice of repentance in the life of a believer. So take care, guys. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.